This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. This is a Business Radio special presentation focusing on the business behind politics. Here's your host, law professor and director of the Perry Worldhouse Global Policy Research Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, William Berkwhite. Welcome back to the Business Behind Politics special here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Bill Burkwhite, director of the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania. And we've learned how the business of politics has really become big business, yet sometimes we haven't had a chance to focus on how those businesses operate, what campaigns are really about. And I'm thrilled to welcome our next guest to talk about how to run a successful campaign, James Carville. James is a political strategist and commentator who successfully managed the presidential de- campaign of Democratic candidate and then President Bill Clinton. James, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. Well, James, you have been an incredibly successful political advisor and strategist. In fact, you really launched that winning streak here in Pennsylvania with Robert Casey's gubernatorial victory in 1986. And I guess I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your journey into being a, a political advisor and, and campaign strategist. Yeah, glad to. I was uh, working in, in Baton Rouge in the mayor's office. Uh, and I decided that I needed a, a like career change. And uh, Peter Hart, Mark Shields, two people in politics, said, you ought to try this. And I said, well, what are you thinking? They said, well, it's an election in Virginia. And I did that in 1982, and we lost. And then I lost another race in Texas, and it was going kind of poorly. And then in 1986, I uh, got a call. Bob Casey had lost three times for governor, and I hadn't won anything, and we were like, the ugliest guy and the ugliest girl and was a night before the prom, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we had to end up together. It worked out well, and then I did races in oh, Kentucky, uh, New Jersey, Georgia, all around, and then did uh, President Clinton back in Pennsylvania with Senator Boffitt and President Clinton, and then after that, I turned and did more campaigns. I think I've worked in 22, different, 22 or 23 different countries on foreign campaigns, so I've been You've you seen know, them all. So, you know, James, when when you come into a campaign, sometimes it's just at the outset, sometimes it's already been going for a while. What do you want to know? What do you need to decide to be able to kind of build a strategy and, and get the ball rolling? Well, you want to know to try to see exactly, exactly what the campaign's trying to tell people. <laughs> you know, so the most important question is now interview and talk so much as you ask the candidate or you ask the communications director, what exactly are we about here? Mm-hmm. And that's just the, the rationale of the reason is the most important thing. And once that gets established, at least my style was I would make everybody else's job easy. I, I would you know, make sure that they had the resources they need, make sure that they had the morale and the environment to work in and, and try to get things out, coordinate things, stay, uh, you know, keep everybody focused and, you know, working in the same direction. And that's sometimes a difficult thing to do. And in politics, I've found it's not the hardest thing in the world to figure out what to do. It's extremely hard to get people to do it. Hmm. And, and to get everybody kind of working on the same thing at the same time, that that's really difficult. And in and fact, we like often... A lot of personalities and... Go ahead. You know, you said a lot of personalities to manage. And one of the big challenges that we often see with campaigns when they go a little bit amok is that either those personalities are clashing with one another uh, or the decision-making process is falling apart. How do you get people with such often big personalities and rapid but unclear decision-making processes uh, on the same page and and moving forward? You know, it's it's a superb question. I mean, one of the things you do is, you can anticipate. So if you know that somebody's got a, a view that's different than everybody else's, you have to spend some time with them. You, you try to bring people along. You know, sometimes some candidates like to call other people to like see if they think what their campaign doing is right. You got to anticipate that and call them ahead of time and explain what you're doing. It, it you, you understand, you generally a campaign manager's there for four or five months. Mm-hmm. And, you don't have the power to, to like determine the trajectory of someone's career. So you, you you have to really 
control people and you know bought into what it is that you're trying to do you just walk in like a ship captain and bark in orders and you're not going to get very far so I, I like to you know first develop a rationale get everybody particularly the candidate get everybody a agree to that rationale, and then how do we promote it as we go forward. I, I never believe much in secrecy in campaigns. I used to say, you know, we're trying to tell 100 million Americans what we're about. Why can't I tell 100 staff people? We're not a secret operation here. We, we actually got a message. We have a rationale. We're trying to tell people what we're about. So when you come into one of these campaigns, you got to build a team. And I'm kind of wondering, sort of, what are you looking for in that campaign team? Uh, what kind of skills do you want to bring on board? Uh, what hires really matter? Okay, well, yeah, a lot of times you come aboard as a team. But, but what you really want, and not everybody can do politics. Mm-hmm. They, they have people that graduate with 4.0s from Princeton or something. And Even if they studied politics, it. doesn't mean they can well, do it. it. Because it's... What you're really looking for is the ability to work quickly and under pressure. And in that's just a skill that you know you you, you got to get somebody you know that knows what the talking point is, knows what the message is. Research has to flow into the to to the real central idea of the campaign, which is a part of the campaign that I've really elevated. The schedule has to tie into you know objectives of, of the campaign. So what, I'm, what you're really looking for is people who are able to sink and act quickly under pressure. And pressure and there is, particularly with the clock of a campaign being so fast. Every, it, 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 that it is. And, you know, just, just some people are more deliberative. And that's just not a – maybe it's a good quality to have in life. It's just not a good quality to have in campaigns. And you, you also – Disruptive people can really, because you have such a short period of time, you, you, you have to either get rid of or work around disruptive people as best you can. But the biggest job is dealing with the candidate. Yeah, so because talk to me about the candidate. How is there a moment when you walk into a campaign and you sit down with the candidate and you say, this one's got what it takes? Did you have that moment, say, when you started to work for Bill Clinton? He kind of knew that he had. I mean, you could just tell that he was so much more talented than, than anybody else. It was not a, yeah. But each, all kinds of candidates are different. They have different ideas. They have different insecurities. They have different people that they rely on. And I mean, the job of a good manager is to figure out, <clears throat> you know, what's going on around here. And what do you do with the candidate who, well, how shall I say, it can't be managed? There's always that candidate who has their own agenda, their own script, and and sometimes doesn't follow the strategy they agreed to. You know, that that happens, but when you come aboard, you kind of clear about what your role is and a candidate's role. You generally would have, now when things don't go not so well on you, then, you know, people second-guess you to do it there, should you do do that. And I was with my candidates, I said, you know, just, we're just going to be kicking a rock in a Walmart parking lot with five days to go deciding what to do here. <laughs> I mean, at some point, it's just you have that moment uh, where the campaign is really close and you want to try, you know, you want to do this, you want to do that. It, 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 some, some of it is not as scientific as, as you think it is. Some of it is intuitive also. And, and James, obviously a campaign manager wants to lose their job by winning an election, but uh, more often than not, campaign managers only make it through part of an election cycle. Sort of what happens that ends up pushing somebody out of one of these jobs, and, and how does that uh, you know shape the campaign? Well, sometimes people are incompetent. Other times people, they get in fights with, like, the candidate's spouse or the law partner or, or something else, and or the chief donor or the brother or the sister, which is stupid. And that generally, you know, unwinds a lot of, a lot of people. And there's a lot of managers that get out there and they demand that everything has to be 100% their way. They storm out. It's just, it's everybody has a different style in doing it. And once yeah, one of those styles it, start to clash, it, it may be time it, for it a really change. May, right. And, and I used to view, kind of viewed my job is. 
as much as just keeping everybody on the same page at the same pace. And, you know, no, I never had an office. I always was in the open because I didn't want to encourage meetings. You know, if you have an office, like close the door and people, well, what are they doing back there? Or, you know, what are they doing? And, you know, I want to be part of this. So I just had my desk right in the middle of everybody else's. And management style matters. If you're just tuning in, I'm speaking with political strategist James Carville about how to run a successful political campaign. I'm Bill Burkwhite, and this is Cirrus XM's Business Behind Politics special. James, how do you market a candidate? You get, you know, in there, you've got your candidate. How do you figure out how to make that candidate appealing to voters in the particular election cycle that you're in? That's very—you have to make an assessment. So what is your candidate? What, what, how is that candidate different than the other candidate? And what is the mood of the electorate? They're looking for somebody new, or they're looking for somebody with experience. Is, it, is the candidate is the state or the country or the city or anything else? Do people think it's on the wrong track or the right track? Uh, you know, what's the mood of the electorate? Where's the, the rhythm going? And every campaign has a certain rhythm to it. And what you want to do is try to figure that rhythm out and how do you, how do you what, I, what I always say is, how do we get in the seam and stay mm-hmm. in the seam? You know, to seem that's the right seam, you want to stay there. And I think execution is much more important than than anything else in, in having an idea of who you are and what your campaign is about. And, you know, hopefully you correctly anticipate where the election is, but you know, sometimes you get in and you just got the wrong person at the wrong time and you're not going to win that race. So, James, can you help us understand a little bit the sort of life cycle of a campaign? What's it like in those early days and sort of what changes as we move through to Election Day in terms of what's going on? Yeah, take a presidential campaign. Well, before you start to get started, the first thing you, you assessment you make is you know how where how and where we're going to raise the money to do this mm-hmm. money is and, at the heart of it and uh yeah it's, it's at the heart of it and you know in there you know like you got hires in iowa new hampshire south carolina california and you know you see where people lined up and you know, now I'm not as plugged in. When I was doing this, I knew, you know, everybody and who was good and who'd manage this campaign. And, you know, you had a, a good, but back then people I had a Rolodex. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and people come forward, a lot of people you have to hire. You know, the candidates got somebody that they really like and they, they want them. You can't, you know, you can't, play, you know, have that kind of power. And so it, it just, it honestly, it, the, the presidential campaign all started already. I mean, they, a lot of people are already mapping out what they're going to do. Yeah, for 2020, and still then, two plus yeah, years oh, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to say we're waiting until after this. They're not waiting for anything. I mean, they're thinking about it, positioning themselves in the best way that they think they can. But, you know, when you when you start from scratch, you very seldom start from scratch. When somebody has, every person running for president brings a political infrastructure with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that Teddy White described it in a making the president, it, it, it's like an onion that, that they bring the core as, as you keep adding layers around the kind of central core. But most of the time, you, you know, the candidate will have a, you know, he would have been a governor, a senator, or a mayor, or something. So he has his own or her. Be clear here, they have his or her own political apparatus that comes with them, and if somebody's been with them for, you know, 10 years, they likely not going to want these people around when they undertake a bigger endeavor, and I completely understand that. And, and it's your job to get along with them, to make them feel like they're part of, you know, everything, and you don't come in like some out-of-town hotshot, you know, moving furniture around. It's not, not the way to go about it. So while there's no presidential election this year, there's lots of House and Senate campaigns all across the country. And I'm wondering if you could take us inside them in these last days before the election. What are they worrying about? Is there still room to make a difference? Or at this point, is it just uh, get through till Tuesday and see what happens? Well, the thing that's kind of different is, depending on the state, a lot of people are already voting. 
Right. With early voting in a lot of districts, yeah. there's, uh, you know, yeah. this decision may already have been made. I mean, that's, I mean, somebody, I mean, like in out of Oregon or Washington State, I don't think anybody's left to vote on election day <laughs> in some of these places. So yeah, where you have big, you know, election day, like Virginia's, most of its votes, that's one state that votes a lot on election day. It depends. You're trying to mobilize. You, 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 you know, then there's stuff that is going on that I would, all the outsourcing, or not outsourcing, within the campaign, a lot of technology stuff, the social media, that kind of stuff is all an explosion of that since I've run campaign. So I'd have to, well, I don't know if I could acquaint myself with it, but I could sure find someone who could <laughs> and find out what it is. And, and you're trying to allocate the, you know, you're looking for an extra three tenths of a point now. So you're really paying attention to the schedule. You want to see how many things you can get done in a day. You can, you know, you hit different markets. Uh, you, you want some separator. One of the things that we would do is we would have it the day, the night before the election, we'd have like a 24-hour scheduling day. Mm-hmm. Where our candidate would go and look and just create as much action and create your own weather to the extent that you can. You're not going to change your whole thing around, but, you, you know, we, we, a lot of these races are close and, you know, 500, 600 votes can mean a lot in a congressional race. So, James, I run a foreign policy research institute, and one of the things that I find most interesting about your career is that not only have you advised winning candidates here in the United States, but you've also done that overseas. Tony Blair in the U.K., Ehud Barak in Israel, Ashraf Ghani in Afghanistan. Uh, How different are these campaigns in other countries from what we know here about election cycles and, and political processes in America? Well, first thing is, I'm more of a communications person. I mean, the, the, the principles of good communication are constant wherever you are. So when I go through a foreign race, I'm, I'm really trying to help develop the message and, you know, see that the, the, the campaign can do certain things. But, you know, we take a lot of stuff for granted. America, so some people just don't have the same history with democracy we did. And, you know, you have to be very careful how you thread and in a lot of times you just have to time has to to be on your side you have to be patient because if the campaign is no good you know generally at some point the candidate will realize that and you have to move pretty quickly but it's it's a lot of communications and a lot and you know i can't tell you the number of times that you know i've gone and flown into somewhere and had meetings and it's a lot of people around the world as you know, like to smoke cigarettes and drink coffee, and they just sit there and meet forever. And so they said, "What do you do?" And you, you know, you you write a paragraph and say, "Look, this is what we're about." Boom, boom, boom. And they said, "Well, I mean, we paid you all this money and came all here. And we had this meeting, and you're telling me that this is yeah, that's what I'm telling you. Well, the- it's got to be more to it than that. No, it's really not." It's figuring out what you're about and, and being authentic and saying it. But how much do you then need to get to know the local context? Um, is it the same as, say, dropping into uh, a, a house race in a different part of the country? Or how much does, you know, the, the, the country actually matter to your ability to help craft that message? Yeah, you, you would be surprised how similar it is. Uh, uh, I mean, you, you and if you're a political person, you didn't take you long to figure out, you know, where your vote is coming from. Uh, you know, the polling is really pretty good all the way around the world. And, you know, never, you know, politics has a, what I can't say, what, lingua soccer, you know what I mean? It has mm-hmm. a common language around it. it, it, it most of the political class in the world speaks English. It's not as big a problem as you think it is. So politics is politics pretty much anywhere in the world. James, one last question for you. You've been in this business a long time. Tell us about one or two of the changes you've experienced, whether you just mentioned polling and data or uh, uh, new technologies. Uh, what's changed and why is that important? Well, first of all, I mean, tribalism is such a politics. That, that American politics has become... If you think of this, there are about 3,100 county or county equivalents in the United States. Mm-hmm. In 1992, it's called supermajority, and it is one party wins by 50%. So you got to win 75, 25. Yep. All right. Out of 3,100 in 1992, there were 96 supermajority counties. 
by 2016, there were 1,250. Wow. Uh, I mean, so what it tells you is people are all clustering, and it, it, you're just seeing this really intense kind of partisanship, and it, the middle has collapsed in a lot of places in American politics. That is true. And we were way more about the middle in 92, or Casey in 80. In '86, mm-hmm. or you know, other races that I've been involved in, because politics was, was less tribal. So tribalization is, is a, a real thing. I think, to a large extent, uh, you know, technology. But technology always changes. I mean, people forget. You imagine what life was like the day before you had the radio, as opposed to the day after. I mean, you don't remember when you got. But I guarantee you, even your grandparents remember when they got their first radio because they were doing nothing the day before. And then, you know, great <laughs> parents, and then they had programming, instant news, and God knows what not. So and now, you, you know, obviously technology has made, can make a lot of things more efficient. There's just so much more data we have, so much we know about people. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's the first person that sat in the public square and, Greece in 500 BC said this election presents a choice. It's, you know, he wants peace with Sparta. I say we cannot stand down to these to the thugs to the south. You know, you know he wants. I want more park space and libraries and bathrooms, and he doesn't. Whatever it is, you know, it's, it's always a uh, framing of an issue. And so the foreign affairs are kind of highbrow foreign policy magazine asked me to read a memo that Cicero's brother sent to him back to the Roman Empire. And I, my conclusion was, is we have learned nothing new. Everything that we know, you could take that memo that was written, you know, 2,000, 2,100 years ago, and you could apply it today. Well, it, politics is politics is politics, whether it's ancient uh, Greece or Rome or, or America today. Uh, America will be making that choice on Tuesday. James, thanks so much for joining us. That's a lot. Thank you, sir. That was James Carville, a political strategist and commentator. I'm thrilled to welcome our next guest to the program, Michael Daniel, former special assistant to the president and cybersecurity coordinator on the National Security Council, as well as current president of the Cyber Threat Alliance. Our second guest is NBC News correspondent Joe Ling Kent, who covers business, tech and the economy and more. Michael and Joe, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Michael, I want to start with you. What does it mean to be cybersecurity coordinator at the National Security Council? Great title. What did you do at the White House? It's a very complicated job in many ways. Um, It had elements of being an advisor to the president, making sure that uh, the president and other senior staff in the White House were fully informed on cybersecurity issues and could make uh, informed decisions. It also involved running the policy process for the president to get agencies to agree on the the policies that we were going to pursue uh, in cybersecurity, and also dealing with major cybersecurity incidents when they happened and coordinating the government's response to those uh, to those incidents. So, Michael, during the time you were at the White House and, and over the Obama administration, cybersecurity went from a sort of minor issue in, in uh, American national security to a really critical one. How did your evaluation of the challenge change uh, across uh, the, the Obama years? Well, I think you're right. I think Particularly, you know, going back almost a decade, um, it was almost we had to work at convincing people that cybersecurity was an issue that belonged in the White House Situation Room. And certainly, by the time the Obama administration was done, that was that was no longer true. I think the threat continued to evolve to become bigger because we have more and more things that we've hooked up to uh, the internet, and we're more dependent on cyberspace and the internet for. You know, our lives, for our economic prosperity, for our national security. And it's also become more dangerous because the bad guys have figured out that they can pursue their interests through cyberspace, whether they're criminals or nation states or hacktivists or terrorists, and they're willing to take risks and take actions now that they weren't 
you know, five, 10 years ago. So 2016 indicated that there was a cybersecurity threat to the U.S. election system generally. Um, I want to talk about two different parts of that. One is the integrity of the vote itself. How much of a cybersecurity threat is there on Tuesday uh, to, to people casting their votes and having them counted? So I think that the threat to the actual electoral infrastructure in terms of the integrity of the vote, meaning that the vote totals will reflect what the voters have actually cast, is that is the cyber threat to that is is low. Mm-hmm. The the threat is actually more in the ability to disrupt the whole process and to cast doubt on it. In other words, to create chaos at the polls or to create the impression that there is problems with uh, the voting process that lead people to doubt uh, the results, to challenge the results. Um, And it could actually end up causing some disruptions in a way that, um, you know, prevent people from voting or things like that, which, you know, in tight races could have a uh, an impact on the outcome. Right. That's sending misinformation to voters about when polls are open or where lines are and other ways uh, keeping them from getting to the polls. Right, or even doing things like, um, uh, you know, uh, intruding into poll books or, um, you know, the voter Mm -hmm. registration databases so that it's more difficult for someone to uh, actually show up and, and vote, like, say... Uh, an intruder might change some of the information in uh, in a voter registration database so that someone's uh, you know picture ID doesn't match the a- address on their picture ID doesn't match what's in the poll book so they have difficulty actually casting uh, casting a ballot. In most places, you could still cast a provisional ballot, yep. but you know, that makes it more challenging. And certainly that provisional ballot is something people shouldn't forget if they're going to the polls as always a possibility. But what about the broader uh, kind of threat we saw in 2016, which is a foreign actor, perhaps Russia in that case, trying to shape uh, the outcome, not by, say, hacking into the polling system itself, but through use of Facebook and Twitter and Reddit and other forms of social media uh, that might be influencing the election. Is that a cybersecurity threat? Is that something we should think of in in this same cybersecurity domain? Well, it's certainly, I certainly see it as a threat to our electoral process. And I think of it, those kinds of, you know, the, the, the fancy term that we tend to use for those in, the, in government circles and in the national security world is information operations. Mm-hmm. And those kinds of operations, you know, you certainly see them. Uh, we haven't seen them to the same extent that uh, the, in this cycle that we did in 2016. But Um, I think there's certainly evidence that they are out there, and I think we will see additional evidence that they've been out there, you know, once the election is, uh, is over. And I certainly think that we can expect to see that again in the next presidential election. And it won't, and it likely next time around won't just be Russia, it will be other actors that have learned from what the Russians were, uh, were able to do. And so I certainly think that Voters are going to have to get a lot more savvy about consuming the information that they get online and how they think about it and be a lot more skeptical um, and don't just take things at face value. So how is the business sector, in particularly the social media world, uh, responding to these information operations? There's been a lot of changes, Facebook creating a war room, uh, activities at Reddit to try to, to clamp down on these information operations. What's the private sector doing? I think what you're seeing is that those kinds of platform providers and the social media providers have really woken up to the fact that their platforms were being misused um, and were being used by people to pursue nefarious goals and that they have now really started to invest in some new ways in uh, countering that. And it's requiring them to be quite creative um, and to think about how they're doing their, their investments. And this is a slightly different challenge in many ways than what we've traditionally considered a cybersecurity challenge. In other words, it wasn't that the Russians like hacked into Facebook and set up accounts. They just set up accounts, right? They didn't they didn't conduct operations where they hacked into some place. They just put information out there and used the natural capabilities of social media to do what they were, you know, originally designed to do. And so combating that is a is a little bit of a different challenge than a lot of the traditional 
you know, cybersecurity challenges of protecting networks and passwords and things like that. So this is an this is an emerging discipline, I think, of countering these information operations. And it's it's, it's related to cybersecurity, but I think will eventually emerge as a slightly different dis- discipline. Let me quickly remind our audience that I'm speaking with Jolene Kent of NBC News and former special assistant to President Obama, current president of the Cyber Threat Alliance, Michael Daniel. Uh, Michael, I guess I'm wondering what more the private sector can and should be doing. Um, I know you're now involved in advising private sector clients in some of these spaces. What can and should American businesses do uh, to prevent these challenges going forward? I think there's a couple of key things that they can do, one of which is to start thinking about cybersecurity a little bit differently. Stop thinking about it as a technical problem that you can solve and rather a holistic issue, a holistic risk for your business that you have to manage over time, just like you manage all your other risks for a business, like your legal risk or your brand risk or you know, personnel risk. That This is a risk that you can actually make some investments in to, uh, you know, to reduce your likelihood of having mm-hmm. it, to reduce the impact of a cyber incident when it occurs. But just like with all risks, you can never drive it completely to zero. Yep. Um, and you need to be prepared for, uh, for that fact. Um, but that, you know, and then the second thing I would say is if you adopt that risk mindset, that risk management mindset, and drive your investments that way and think about it holistically uh, from end to end, not just about the technology, but about your business operations and your people, uh, as well as the technology, you can actually – uh, you can actually significantly reduce your risk in this area. So, Jolene Kent, I want to turn to you for a minute. Uh, you just did an interview with the CEO of one company that's doing a lot to brace for the midterms. That's Reddit, a, a, a forum uh, that's been subject to some criticism for these kind of information operations. Uh, how's Reddit preparing for the midterms? Well, Reddit is launching its own war room of its own to counter misinformation. They've also had to take down lots of different posts uh, that they believe are linked to Russia. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the CEO, Steve Huffman, he's also co-founder of Reddit, has told me that he does feel ready for the midterm election. So he has a small team compared to Facebook, right? This is a company of about 400 people nestled in San Francisco. It's not the kind of place it's a Facebook or a Google. And so you have a much smaller army kind of fighting what they see as a lot of conspiracy theories, misinformation. And as you know, uh, you know, Reddit is a very popular social media site. A lot of, say, older people don't necessarily use it, but it's very popular with younger teenagers, especially. It's the fifth most visited website in the United States. And so they are definitely countering this stuff before it goes mainstream. But they say that as they change and become more sophisticated, so do their adversaries. And so it's a constant back and forth. So talk to me, if you would, a little bit about Facebook's efforts. You mentioned the bigger war room at Facebook. Uh, how much yeah. of their efforts been successful in, in curbing these sorts of operations? Well, just last week, Facebook disclosed that they took down uh, several accounts and pages that about a million people were following that were linked to Iran. And so one of their newer adversaries here has definitely been Iranian-linked accounts and pages. And so it's not just the Russians, not just the you know domestic issues, which, by the way, is a very, very big deal, is a lot of misinformation that's coming from within the United States. It's not all foreign interference. But that war room, according to the head of elections at Facebook, is really a place for everyone to gather so they can rapidly respond to some of these disinformation memes, or more importantly, or a lot equally important, I should say, our voter suppression issues, right, is putting out misinformation to discourage you from going to the polls or discourage mm-hmm. you from registering to vote. And so they're trying their best. It does feel a little like window dressing, to be honest, when we went inside the war room, because like anything, you know, it's a company wide effort. But they are trying to show how much they're trying this time versus in 2015 and 2016 when they plainly did not know what was going on. And Jolene, how do we think differently about the domestic versus foreign uh, misinformation and how are companies uh, responding differently to what's coming from within versus what's coming from outside of the United States? Well, Facebook specifically has told me that they're looking at the Mexican elections as a model for how they're countering misinformation here Mm -hmm. in the U.S. And that's where they started to first detect a lot of this domestic misinformation. The issue here, the real 
sticking point for a lot of people, a lot of users, in addition to the management and executives at Facebook, is free speech. Because if you're putting out information that isn't necessarily physically or violent or harmful in that way, it doesn't always violate their terms of their standards. In a lot of ways, it can, and they do downrank it, but Facebook doesn't necessarily move that information out of your newsfeed. And so that's where this domestic back and forth becomes really complicated because you're dealing with a free speech issue. You're dealing with disgruntled, a lot of disgruntled conservatives who for a long time have said that these tech companies are discriminating against them, both in terms of employees and content. And then you are also grappling with like the sheer amount of stuff, right? Like artificial intelligence can be one helpful way to filter this out, but can the 20,000 security employees that Facebook has hired actually do enough in time for election day? The answer seems to be no at this point. And to support that point, the former Facebook chief security officer, Alex Stamos, who I just interviewed, who just left the company, says that it's too late to protect the elections. And part of that is within these tech companies, they're not able to do enough. And another reason is because they don't feel like they've got the same sort of government law enforcement support that they need yep. at this juncture because there's a political disagreement about whether or not Russian interference happened in the first place in 2016. So, Jolene, we only have about 30 seconds left, but could you uh, tell us to what degree are companies building this into their long-term strategies or is this a problem that can end on Election Day? Oh, no, this is just the beginning. And I think the folks at Facebook and Reddit and all across Silicon Valley, all across the West are all bracing for 2020. They see this as a rehearsal. And so uh, I don't believe it. I think that you're going to see security beefed up in a big way and they're going to have to continue to rethink how they tackle this problem because it's going to become a bigger and bigger issue as adversaries get more and more sophisticated. Well, when America votes on Tuesday, hopefully the polls will be secure, but figuring out how to ensure this balance of freedom of speech and the need to protect the integrity of the election uh, will be a critical challenge going forward. Thanks so much, uh, Joe and Michael. It's been a pleasure having you with us today. Thank you for having me. That was Lynn Kent of NBC News and former special assistant to President Obama and current president of the Cyber Technology Alliance, Michael Daniel. I'm Bill Burkwhite, director of the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania, and this is the Business Behind Politics special here on Cirrus XM 132. To wrap our program, I'm thrilled to introduce Dan Primick to talk about predictions and potential policy as a result of what ends up happening on Tuesday. Dan is a business editor at Axios and author of the Daily Pro Rata Newsletter. Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Dan, can you tell us a little bit about the current landscape of Congress today and maybe a little bit about what that landscape has meant for business over the last couple of years? Sure. Uh, the landscape is Republican. Uh, you know, Republicans not only control the White House, but both the House and the Senate uh, by, by pretty good margins in both cases in both cases. And, and, you know, whether, you know, parties in power when the economy is good, take lots of credit for it. Uh, and when the economy is bad, they, they kind of blame the invisible hand of the market. Um, but in this case, you know, you've had a growing and strengthening economy really for, you know, a decade now. So both when Democrats were in power, but now Republicans for several years. And, uh, and they're taking credit for it. And in certain cases, particularly kind of the end of last year, the beginning of this year, they'll point to things such as the tax cut uh, plan, particularly as uh, juicing that a bit. So the Republicans are really running on keep this economy going strong. Uh, but it seems like the Democrats might take over the House of Representatives. What would be necessary for that to happen on Tuesday? Uh, that's the way it's looking. Uh, you know, it seems very unlikely that the Democrats will be able to take the Senate, uh, in, in part because of the numbers. They have to kind of they have a, the way the numbers are right now. The Democrats have are defending a lot of seats in Trump states or in red states, uh, deep red states. Uh, so it's kind of bad math for them. On the House side, though, everybody's up. You know, every House seat is up. And in that case, the Republicans have some bad math because they have dozens and dozens of retiring members. So it looks like the Democrats will win the House and Republicans will keep the Senate. So let's assume that happens and the polls are actually right. What do you think that'll mean for business sentiment and the U.S. economy more generally if the Democrats do control the House? I think for business sentiment, it'll probably be kind of a wash. I think if the Democrats win the House, uh, you remember by not having the Senate and obviously not having the White House, you're not going to see the Democratic House on its own be able to propose legislation to get it passed. And, and on the other hand, you are not going to be able to see kind of Republican, on the business side, Republican legislation get through the House. So I think what we're going to get is a state of gridlock. And to be honest, business doesn't necessarily mind gridlock because gridlock means status quo and certainty, which is that big term that CEOs always talk about. They want certainty. They want to know what's going to happen next. Gridlock kind of gives them that. And given that they've had a pretty nice glide path of the economy, that part should be okay for them. 
the real concern for business isn't necessarily Democrats or Republicans winning the House. It's more that there is a growing fear that we are at the latest stages of this economic recovery or this economic cycle, and that we could start to go downhill no matter who's in charge of Congress. So actually, politics may matter less than uh, the fundamentals of the economy for for where uh, the U.S. economy goes. Now, Dan, you mentioned it's probably unlikely that the Democrats were to take the Senate, but if the Democrats had both houses, do they have an economic agenda that they would be trying to advance if if they had uh, the power to do so? They do. Uh, I mean, part of it, and the thing that Democrats have been running on nationally, uh, the most is health care. And, and you don't think of health care necessarily as an economic issue. But when you look at the massive percentage of the economy it, it covers, when you look at everything from drug prices to how people make decisions for jobs based on, based on health care, they would certainly try to bring back the ACA and, and pieces of the ACA. That would, that would be a huge part. And then there'd be a secondary part where they might actually be able to work with President Trump, which would be on infrastructure. You know, President Trump ran you know, in 2016. And Infrastructure was a big part of his campaign, fixing roads and bridges and tunnels and airports and kind of all the stuff that's been that's kind of crumbling a bit in this country. Uh, it hasn't happened. Uh, they, they didn't come out. There's been no proposal on infrastructure from the White House. It is something that's popular among Democrats. The only thing that could be problematic is President Trump also ran on cutting deficits and debt. He has done the opposite of that. We have rising deficits. We have rising debt. And it's unclear if you could have you know, get a major spending package through. So how did infrastructure kind of drop off the political landscape? Both parties in various ways seem to support it. It would be good for business, uh, yet it seems to have disappeared since uh, the presidential campaign two years ago. Uh, the White House, the, the basic source, the White House didn't prioritize it. They simply did not prioritize it. Uh, and they gave up very, very quickly. Uh, you know, they prioritized health care. They prioritized tax cuts. And then and infrastructure was supposed to be the third leg of that stool. And they, they just didn't do the job it is the simplest way. And it is it's something that Republicans talk about, but it ultimately requires a lot of spending. And that's not something Republicans really are excited about. There's been talk about kind of alleviating some of that outlay with public-private partnerships, et cetera. But that's still money coming from the federal government, and, and, it's, uh, and it's just not something Republicans want to do, particularly when they've already racked up the deficit and made it so much larger. This, in the short term, would create even larger deficits, more debt. And if we ended up with the divided House and Senate that seems likely, do you think there could be a bipartisan compromise to sort of nudge the White House forward on a, an infrastructure package? I think there could be. I mean, I think that's the that's the hope, right? That that's and I say that not not ideologically, but simply, you know, I, I think all of us, no matter where we are on the political spectrum, we'd like the airports to work well. We'd like <laughs> air traffic control to work well. We want to drive over a bridge and not be concerned, you know, that it could you know collapse or you know the roads are going to have major holes in them. That that is bipartisan. That's nonpartisan. It's non ideological. And and you may that might be the one place where the and the White House is also going to need a win, right? Because if you have major gridlock, the White House is not going to be able to, without Democrats in the House, get any real legislative win in the last two years of President Trump's presidency, this might be one place where they could get that. So another area of policy that seems to be being flipped on its political head uh, over the last few years is trade policy. Uh, How do you think the outcomes of the midterms might impact uh, the trade agenda and, uh, you know, where uh, the the trade deals that, um, you know, Trump has pulled out of some and and advocated for others uh, uh, head? It's an interesting question, and it's particularly interesting from two ways. First, where, what do we actually see on Tuesday? In other words, some of the places where Trump's current trade policies have hit the hardest, particularly, you know, think of Steve King's district in Iowa, this, mm-hmm. this deep, deep red district. And obviously there, there's lots of other issues there. But farmers there have been hurt uh, by, you know, by the current trade policies, and the White House will stay short-term, but they've been hurt. If, if Trump and the White House see a lot of their shore votes go blue, they might change their trade policy on their own. In general, though, this is a place that's interesting. Democrats, you know, generically speaking, aren't necessarily opposed to a lot of what Trump is doing on trade. You know, Democrats traditionally, particularly in the Midwest, are a bit more protectionist. It's usually Republicans who are screaming free trade, but Republicans in this particular Congress have really not bucked the president on anything he wants to do, even if it's against their own stated interests. So I, I could see some synergies there. That said, I could also see this particular House of Representatives under Nancy Pelosi, you know, extract some concessions or try to extract some concessions on different things from the White House in exchange for ratifying his trade policies. Remember, the president has talked about how he has trade deals, for example, with Canada and Mexico, wants one with China. Congress has to ratify those. Those aren't Mm -hmm. unilateral. He can't do it without help.
So another space that I want to touch on is tax policy. Obviously, the Republicans were able to get a big tax deal through uh, when they controlled both houses. How would a divided uh, House and Senate uh, impact the future course of, of the new tax law or any further changes thereto? That could be interesting. President Trump floated a couple weeks ago that he wants a new middle-class tax cut. And that, that was really kind of... Right, a, and then he said know, it's not going to happen before the election, but well, stay tuned. There's no plan. Yeah. There's no actual plan. He just said he wants it. But it could be an interesting thing. If Democrats take the House, they could try to hold him to that. And in exchange pull back some of the corporate tax cuts, which came a year, you know, a year ago. You know, when the corporate tax cuts got put into place, there was talk that these were permanent corporate tax cuts. But there's no such thing as a permanent tax cut for corporations or individuals. All that meant was it didn't have to be reaffirmed or it didn't have to be, you know, reapproved in five years or ten years. It can completely be reversed or mildly reversed. And maybe you could see Democrats make, a, make an argument, we should cut middle-class taxes for individuals and to pay for it, we're going to take back or you know raise rates on corporations that just got a huge cut. In case you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Dan Primack of Axios here on Sirius XM's Business Behind Politics special. So, Dan, I'm wondering how much you think the results of this set of midterms is going to shape President Trump's business and economic agenda as he seems to already be looking ahead toward 2020. It's going to have to, because he, if, and again, we're, we're all making, and I'm making an assumption here at least, that Democrats are going to take the House right. and probably not take the Senate. But, you know. We've all been surprised before, but that seems to be the likely outcome. Absolutely. But if that, look, if Republicans win both, then, then Trump will get to do what he wants to do, because as I said, Republicans haven't stood in his way really on anything. Um, but if Democrats take the House, he's going to have a choice. He's either going to work with them to try to get things done, or he is simply going to not get anything done. And if any, and, and I think you've already seen him start to lay out some blame game. You know, he's, he started to blame the Federal Reserve for recent uh, you know, volatility in the stock market. When stocks go down, Trump blames the Fed. When <laughs> stocks go up, he credits himself. But, you know, he, if, if he does want to get some things done, he's going to have to work with Democrats. And there are places he can work. He can work with them on infrastructure. He could work with them on taxes, potentially. You know, he's, he's not a terribly ideological person. He just likes to get what he views as wins. And if Democrats can help give him wins, he might take them. You mentioned two factors that we haven't talked much about, but might be shaping uh, some of how the election plays out. The recent volatility in the stock market and then the Federal Reserve uh, increasing interest rates. How do either of those seem to factor into what happens on Tuesday? The rates, I don't think, uh, impact anything at all. I mean, I, I think anyone who's really paying hardcore attention to, to interest rates, I, I, I don't think that's going to be a reason. You know, we, there's nothing unexpected with what the Federal Reserve is doing. Uh, they, they had been signaling for a very long time they were going to raise rates, and now they're raising rates. And some economists will argue it should be a little more or a little less, but I don't think that's going to have an impact. The, the stock market volatility, I think, may be around the margins. I, I, I have a hard time believing that's why most people are, are going to you know, vote for one party or one candidate or the other. What I'd say about the volatility, though, is I, I think that is reflective that you have people in the market who are starting to get concerned. I, I think you're starting to get a bifurcation between people who think that the bull run we've been on, the strong economy, is going to continue for another year or more, and then other people who feel, no, we're very late in the cycle and the worm is about to turn. And I think that's why we're getting the, these big buys and these big sells, because uh, you're kind of, each side keeps uh, playing on a seesaw a little bit. So we've been talking about some big trends, you know, shaping the, the election. Uh, in midterm elections, it's also uh, often a very local competition. And I'm wondering how you see sort of local economic factors in different parts of the country uh, influencing outcomes versus these sort of macro-level national trends. Well, look, it, it absolutely is. So, you know, you take, take a place like San Francisco, right, which is a great, great place mm -hmm. uh, or a great place to look at in the sense of, you know, it, it is economically one of the strongest areas in the country because, you know, so much of what's been driving the stock market over the last couple of years has been gains in technology. And obviously, San Francisco and the Bay Area is kind of the hub of that. But, you know, the, the big thing that a lot of people are going out to vote on there is a proposition related to homelessness. Uh, it, you know, it's a very local thing. And then they will go, you know, pull their ballots for whoever they pull it on on the federal level. You know, it's interesting when you look inside and when you look, for example, inside of something like wage growth numbers, you see differences by industry. So, you know, you'll, you'll see a headline number and it'll get reported and will report it that, you know, wages rose, you know, X cents per hour worked on average last month. But, but you really need to sometimes look within those numbers and, and certain types of jobs, particularly certain blue collar jobs, haven't gotten the same boost. And, and when you see that, you then kind of map that against where people are actually living and voting in these local races. So 
you know, James Carville coined the term, it's the economy stupid. And in many ways, what we're talking about is the it's the economy stupid version of an election. Uh, At the same time, in this election cycle, it's hard not to talk about Donald Trump. And I guess I'm wondering how much you see Trump uh, being the sort of source of of, of voter preferences uh, in in the races on Tuesday uh, versus the economic interests uh, that we've just been talking about. I think Trump, personally, I think Trump is going to be much more than, than, than economics are. And I say that because the economy is going pretty well. You know, when Carville, you know, when Carville coined that term, that was back, you know, at, at the end of uh, the first President Bush's first term when Bill Clinton was running for his first term and the economy was struggling. Uh, we were either we were officially in a recession or we were pretty close to it. And, and, you know, jobs and, you know, jobs, 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 that was, that was what was on a ton of people's minds. The, 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 what you want to call it, the kind of the, for a um, president, kind of the, the sharp edge for a president when the economy is good, is people often focus more on the president, and particularly this one, who is so divisive, intentionally divisive. I, I don't think he would deny that. And he, um, I think he is what a lot of people are going to look at going in, not necessarily what the GDP is or what the markets are doing. And I guess he is hoping that uh, many of those who, who might have opposed him look at the economic realities and, and vote the Republican side. Uh, and uh, the Democrats may and, be hoping that they ignore the economy and, and, and vote their side of the ticket. Well, he's, he's made that argument. You know, he just uh, yesterday, maybe the day before, he said, look, if Democrats win the midterms, uh, the economy is going to get worse, you're all going to lose a bunch of money, you're going to lose your jobs. He basically said that. And you've got Democrats who are making the argument, look, we are in the midst of an economic recovery. But remember that from their perspective, the economic recovery started after the Great Recession, which you know President Obama presided over. And they will also make a point, as they do, that you know each of the last major recessions we've had, you've had a, a Republican in office, so they, which is in the White House, which is true. So I think both sides can lay a claim, but, but clearly the economy is what Trump is asking his candidates to run on and what he's promoting. Dan, and one piece of what Trump has been promoting is his deregulatory agenda and what that has done for the business community. Um, Is that something that might change based on a a different configuration of of Congress after the midterms, or is that deregulatory agenda going to continue in, in, in pace? I think it's going to continue in pace. Uh, you, you'll see Democrats try to step in and stop things here and there where they can, but again, they really can't do much. You know, you, you take a regulatory issue. What Congress could normally do is Congress could say, okay, that's under the president's purview, but we could pass a law specifically to this thing, and then that would trump the, you know, not, to, not, not as a pun, but that would trump what the president did. But if Democrats only control one side of the coin, you know, Democrats could pass something through the House, and then Mitch McConnell never has to bring it up for a vote in the Senate. So I, I think deregulation... Uh, will certainly continue. So deregulation continues. It looks like we may be in for gridlock coming down the the political pipeline. Dan, what's your prediction uh, for for Tuesday? You've given us a sense of of where you think the House and Senate are going to fall, but give us a prediction really for kind of what that means uh, for the economy over the next year in, in your best guess. You know, I, I happen to be, and I'm not an economist, so I should say that outright. You know, I happen to think we're very, very, very late in this cycle. Corporate earnings are still pretty good. Um, but we're, but I, think, I think what we are going to see is a bit of a slowdown next year, but that doesn't mean negative. That doesn't mean recession. It simply means not necessarily growing quite as fast. I, I, think you'll, I think you'll get maybe kind of what we saw in the stock market, which is a lot of volatility. In other words, where you could get a good quarter, then a bad quarter, then a good quarter. Uh, but I don't think it's going to be because the Democrats win or the Democrats lose or the Republicans win or the Republicans lose. As I said, I, I, I happen to think it, it's kind of outside of them for the most part right now. So it may be that the economic fundamentals end up uh, defining the, uh, the, the business cycle, uh, if not the election. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you all so much for joining us for today's special. If you missed any of the last two hours, feel free to check it out on demand on SiriusXM's app. I'm Bill Burkwhite, director of the Perry World House at the University of Pennsylvania, and you've been listening to the Business Behind Politics special here on SiriusXM 132. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.